We've been living here forever, literally. And when they came here to establish the Manhattan Project, they invaded our lands and our lives. They took advantage of us and used us as labor. We're the people that built the roads, the bridges, the facilities, and then we became the janitors. Uh, we're the women that they bust up to Los Alamos every day to clean the houses, to cook the meals. We fed the babies and changed their diapers. And then we're the people that also built the Trinity test site and lived as close as 12 miles. They never warned us before or afterwards as to the dangers of what we were actually doing. The summer blockbuster Oppenheimer, which told the story of J. Robert Oppenheimer and the Manhattan Project to design and build the world's first atomic bombs, generated a lot of interest in the history of how nuclear weapons were developed in the United States. But the film leaves out an important part of this history, the sacrifice made by tens of thousands of workers in the production of our country's nuclear weapons arsenal. As Christopher Godfrey wrote on the Department of Labor blog, thousands of workers at early atomic energy sites paid a very high price for their contributions to the atomic weapons industry. From the beginning of the Manhattan Project, many workers developed disabling or fatal illnesses from their exposure to beryllium, ionizing radiation, and other hazards unique to nuclear weapons production and testing. Unfortunately, Godfrey writes, far too often these workers did not receive adequate protection from these occupational hazards, nor were they properly informed about the dangers of the work. Hi, and welcome to Labor History Today. On today's show from our colleagues at the Heartland Labor Forum, we'll find out what and who Oppenheimer left out. And on Labor History in Two... The year was 1948. That was the day that a thick yellow fog rolled over the town of Denora, Pennsylvania, just south of Pittsburgh. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is Labor History Today. Step by step, along this march, can be won, can be won. Many stones can form an arch, singly none. And by union, what we will can be accomplished still. Drops of water turn a mill. Singly none, singly none. Welcome to the Heartland Labor Forum, a weekly show of news, information, and commentary by and for the working people of Kansas City. Have you seen the summer blockbuster Oppenheimer? If you did, you did not see the whole story about the building of the first atomic bomb. One important part of the story the viewer did not see in the film is the sacrifice made by tens of thousands of workers in the production of our country's nuclear weapons arsenal. This is from an article by Christopher Godfrey in the Department of Labor blog. So our guest tonight is Tina Cordova. She is a sixth-generation native of New Mexico, New Mexican-born and raised in the small town of Tularosa in south-central New Mexico. In 2005, Tina co-founded the Tularosa Basin Downwinders Consortium with the late Fred Tyler. Their mission of of the consortium is to bring attention to the negative health effects suffered by unknown, 
unwilling, uncompensated, and innocent victims of the first nuclear blast on the earth that took place at the Trinity site in South Central New Mexico. Welcome, Tina. Hi, Chris. Thank you for inviting me to be here today. So tell us about the Downwinders Consortium. How did you start the consortium? I responded to an an editorial in a newspaper that was distributed in the town I grew up in, Tularosa, and the late, late Fred Tyler had returned after having a career away from the little village we grew up in, and his mother died after having three different cancers, and he wrote this letter to the editor saying, essentially, I've been away all this time, I'm back now, and everybody is sick and dying. And he said, you know, I wonder when we're going to hold our government accountable for what they did to us by detonating an atomic bomb so close to where we lived and then not ever warning us before or afterwards. And so I contacted him and I said, I'm very interested in this. Uh, I believe that what you are onto here is absolutely true. I've done a little bit of research throughout, throughout the you know, many years that I've been thinking about this and I agree with you. And so I told him, I'm very excited to... Uh, work on this with you. And I think, you know, what we ought to do is we ought, we, we ought to start an organization. And I was terribly naive because I thought once we brought this to the attention of our government that they would come back and acknowledge the damage they did to us and that they would immediately start to take care of us. And that was 18 years ago. And we still have no acknowledgement. We still have no assistance. We're still living with the consequences of living so close to uh, an atomic bomb site. You know, I'm the fourth generation in my family to have cancer since 1945, and very unfortunate for all of us, I now have a 23-year-old niece who was diagnosed a few months back with thyroid cancer, and she's had her life upended. And she's 23, and it's not uncommon. I mean, I, (laughs) I wish I could say my family's unique, but the truth is, Chris, we have documented hundreds and hundreds of families in New Mexico that are displaying four and five generations of cancer since 1945. Groups of people that are involved in stopping so many nuclear weapons had hoped that the Oppenheimer movie would have shown people that really we need to do something about the hazardous waste and the destructiveness in itself of the weapons. But Jay says in Nukewatch that another way to make this point stick would have been to include what happened to the people of New Mexico, the first victims of nuclear colonialism and nuclear weapons. What really happened at La- at the Los Alamos site? Uh, tell us about the role of farmers, workers, and community members uh, during that time? Sure, that's a great question, Chris. First of all, to reflect on that, we have to remember that New Mexico, people have been living in this part of the country forever. And an example of that is that at White Sands National Monument, which literally is adjacent to the Trinity test site, they found footprints there within the last couple of years that date back 23,000 years. And so I always tell everybody, we've been living here forever, literally. And um, when they came here to establish the Manhattan Project, they invaded our lands and our lives. They 
they came here, they took advantage of us as, and used us as labor. Uh, we're the people that built the roads, the bridges, the facilities, and then we became the janitors. Uh, we're the women that they bust up to Los Alamos every day to clean the houses, to, uh, you know, cook the meals. We fed the babies and changed their diapers. And then we're the people that also built the Trinity test site and lived as close as 12 miles. They never warned us before or afterwards as to the dangers of what we were actually doing uh, and to the dangers of what we were being exposed to. Um, people even lost their lives. New Mexicans lost their lives in explosive accidents. Uh, after the Trinity test, when they continued to develop nuclear devices at Los Alamos. So they literally ran us off our lands. We were farmers and ranchers. Uh, the scene in Oppenheimer shows this vast expanse of nothingness. When Robert Oppenheimer claims this is where we need to establish this. And, you know, he, he literally loved New Mexico because New Mexico was a beautiful place and so they established the the manhattan and the you know the los alamos labs and the manhattan project here and they show this vast emptiness and that is absolutely incorrect there were more than 30 families living on what's called the pajarito plateau they were farmers and ranchers they were native american and mexican americans uh, they were living very simple but full lives and they invaded their lands. They kicked them out, gave them about $7 an acre, uh, burned their crops, slaughtered their animals, and sent them away. And they were never able to establish a life or a livelihood again, not like what they had on the Pajarito Plateau. They did the same thing to the ranchers that lived on what is now the Trinity site. It used to be called the Alamogordo, Alamogordo Bombing Range. And so... The truth is, we were the full support to the whole process. And in the movie, it's as if the Manhattan Project and the Trinity test took place in a vacuum. They don't portray a single one of us. I, I've joked about how they don't even show one of us pumping gas or, or doing anything for that matter. And so it's entirely inaccurate. Without the people of New Mexico, there would have been no Manhattan Project. There would have been no Trinity test. So you say it, there's a certain spot where the La, Los Alamos was built and it remains that same uh, enclave as in 1945? Oh, yes. Los Alamos County is one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest counties in the whole country. It is the, the, the most educated county in the whole country. There's more PhD scientists living in, in that one county than any other place in the whole whole United States. And you only have to drive 20 miles in any direction, and you're, you're then in counties that are some of the poorest in the country. Uh, but the people surrounding Los Alamos in those little towns uh, from throughout northern New Mexico, they make the drive up there every day, and they're the complete workforce. They are the backbone. They're the people that do, you know, all the dirty work up there. And it, it remains so today, very similar to how it was in 1945. None of that has ever changed. I mean, many people tell me if you want a good job, you have to go work up there. And so regularly, regularly, we read in the local newspaper about how they've had some kind of accident where people were exposed to radiation. And it's almost always the people who do 
you know, the manual labor up there that land up being the recipients of, of radiation exposure. How large of a scope was the Manhattan Project? Uh, you hear of it in different areas of the country. What was happening at these parts? And there is, I want to set up a St. Louis, a Missouri connection here because we're, we're on the other side of the state, uh, that there are cleanup sites in St. Louis uh, from the Manhattan Project. So can you describe what it actually did? To actually, the, the project was very, very big in scope. Uh, I think the total budget back then was something like $2 billion. What's more amazing is that only the president knew about it. Congress didn't even know about the Manhattan Project. They didn't, they didn't set the money aside for it. Uh, it, was, it was not known to anyone other than the president of the United States. And of course, General Groves, Robert Oppenheimer, and the scientists who were working on the project but to get everything pulled together, they had several areas of the United States where they were processing uranium, enriching uranium. It, it was a, a major undertaking uh, to take raw uranium and get it to the point of being an acceptable, um, you know, an acceptable product to be used in the fission process. In other words, to, to produce plutonium. And so there's waste associated with that. And so these sites that are spread all across the United States, Hanford, Washington, Oak Ridge, Tennessee, around St. Louis, Missouri, all of these sites were sites where the government had facilities and where they were doing, you know, some of the work to produce the fissile material. And there was waste associated with that. And they were just dumping it locally. As a matter of fact, they dumped radioactive waste in the canyons around Los Alamos into the 1970s. And so certainly at, at all of these other places, they were doing things similarly. And, you know, we know now that that's a very dangerous prospect, that that material never stays localized, that it lands up becoming part of the water table, and, and then it, it goes everywhere. And that's what we're dealing with in lots of places now. Mm -hmm. We're deal dealing with legacy waste, the waste that is, you know, remains from the actual Manhattan Project. Were any of the workers compensated then? Uh, and uh, if cancers are discovered now, are any uh, of the community or workers be, being compensated? There's been a program that was set up many years ago called the EEOICPA, and I'll never remember what that stands for, Chris, but it is the workers program. So if you're a nuclear worker, and you are diagnosed with cancer or there are other illnesses uh, associated with this program, you actually are taken care of by the government. And I believe that program has paid out $22 billion since its inception. And it hasn't been around that long, but clearly it's been a around at least 20 some years. And it's the very best program out there. I mean, you are paid restitution and you get very good medical care, the best available. And so our government does a, a fairly good job of taking care of people who work in the nuclear industry. And I'm certain that that's sort of a reinforcement to the idea that if they didn't, 
maybe people wouldn't consider working in this field. Um, but they do take care of them. And it's quite different from what happens to people like us who are downwinders. We're not, you know, most of us are not taken care of. And um, I often say that the workers had the benefit of their education, the choice to do the work, uh, safety and safety training, safety gear, a lot of times the benefit of a dosimeter. But people like us who were just innocent victims uh, living near test sites or places where they enriched uranium, we never had the benefit of any of those things. And yet our government has never taken care of us. We were enlisted into service without consent or knowledge. So it's quite different. So you're, you're saying the scientists realized the hazards of the substances that they were working with and did, were they in a patriotic fervor for building this bomb or so those scientists deliberately did not tell workers about their situation or, or what they had to do. Oh, no. In 1945, at the time of the Manhattan Project, it was already well established that exposure to radiation was dangerous to human health. During the Manhattan Project, they had health, they had health care workers, they had physicians assigned to the test to look out for human health. They had some established limits for exposure, etc. Um, so they always knew, but I think that the people who decided to do this work back then and continue to do this work today uh, do so knowing that there are risks associated with it. Okay, and to your, is there a consensus within the scientific community about how much radiation is tolerable for a human being? There's always, you know, it's been a moving consensus target. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's the crazy thing, right? Is that the, the, the thresholds have changed throughout time. At the time of Trinity, they had very high thresholds. They said you could be exposed to very high levels and that was tolerable. And over time that has changed. And what's even crazier is that those tolerance levels have always been based on a male adult of a certain size. So it completely does not address a female Mm-hmm. and the differences between a male and a female or a child. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, reference man, that's what they call it, reference man is not what most people think an adequate model. You, we should really be deferring to the lowest um, standard. In other words, the standard that protects children would be a better standard. Uh, tell us about the filming of Oppenheimer. You mentioned that it was sort of disruptive when they came to actually film it. Yeah, I don't know that I would categorize it as disruptive, but what I would say is that when they came here to, to establish the Manhattan Project in New Mexico, they invaded our lands in our lives. They took advantage of the workforce and everything that they needed here to get this job done And then they left. They literally walked away after they detonated the bomb at Trinity. When they came here to film the movie, it was a very similar invasion of our lands and our lives. No reflection on the part that the people of New Mexico played in in the Manhattan Project or the Trinity test. No reflection on the harm done. And we did outreach to them. 
you know, we tried to reach them, tried to get them to consider just adding a panel at the end of the film that would recognize that. And we were told every time we did any kind of outreach using any method that we, you know, that we utilized, that they just were not interested in that. And I really do clearly say that it would have changed nothing about their film if they would have portrayed what really happened here. It would have changed nothing. Um, the other thing is they took advantage of our tax incentives to do the film, to make the film. And we're a very poor state. We're the most reliant on, medi on Medicaid of any state in the country. 47% of all the people here access health care on Medicaid. Uh, the other thing that we have recently learned is that the people in New Mexico, there's about 2 million people living here. We carry some of the highest medical debt of any state in the country. We're carrying $881 million in medical debt, almost a billion dollars in medical debt. And for them to take our tax incentives, and now they're, they're, the movie's about to gross a billion dollars um, internationally, worldwide, it's just exploitation. I mean... It's, it's a further invasion of our lands and our lives with no reflection whatsoever on the damage that was done to the people here, of the part that they played, of the contributions that they made. Um, and I haven't even touched upon the uranium mining that took place after Trinity here, but we were the largest producer of uranium at one point of any place in the world. And we have a 1,000 abandoned uranium mine and mill sites. Those people were absolutely exploited, and their poverty was used against them to get them to go into those mines day in and day out without adequate safety gear. And so there's this long legacy of abuse and neglect here in New Mexico when it comes to this industry. And uh, we're just about out of time. How can our listeners learn more about the downwinders and reach you if they have any questions or want to help chris that's a great question for you to ask me we have a wonderful website it's www.trinitydownwinders so that's plural trinitydownwinders.com and people can go there and they can read oral histories that are uh, recorded there they can read about what we're working on they can see the call to action that we have listed uh, there's a lot of things that, that they can do um, to support our work. Right now, we're fighting in Congress to get uh, Congress to pass the amendments to the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act to add the people of New Mexico for the very first time. And so everybody could help us with that. So I'm hopeful that your listeners will do just that. Go to our website and find out more about how they can help us. Well, thank you so much. Uh, Tina Cordova. The website again is www.trinitydownwinders.com for more information. We still got our pride Cause we are the working class And that's the place to be He said if I were Frank Sinatra Strings and through political bull, you'd be on top of the glorified garbage pile. With all of their plastic smiles, you'd be with all the self appointed kings and queens, with all their power and wealth and the material.
tomorrow, October 30th, we recognize the sacrifices made by nuclear weapons workers and their family members in the interest of our national defense on the National Day of Remembrance for Nuclear Weapons Workers. Congress first passed a resolution in 2009 to recognize the sacrifices of tens of thousands of workers in the production of our country's nuclear weapons arsenal, writes Christopher Godfrey, director of the Office of Workers' Compensation Programs at the U.S. Department of Labor. We take this day, writes Godfrey, to recognize and honor the hardships experienced by these workers and their families. We also honor and remember those who we've lost. Today, the Energy Employees Occupational Illness Compensation Act program, established by Congress in 2000, provides benefits to those who were sickened or who died from this work, as well as their families. To date, says Godfrey, the program has provided over $22 billion in compensation and medical benefits to approximately 135,000 claimants, far exceeding original estimates for the program. Workers who became ill due to their work or their surviving family members are encouraged to apply for benefits. The compensation and medical benefits available under the program may help lessen the hardships some seriously ill workers and their families are now facing, writes Godfrey. To learn more about eligibility or to start a claim, call toll-free 866-888-3322 or go to dol.gov forward slash agencies forward slash OWCP forward slash energy. We've got the number and link in the show notes. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1948. That was the day that a thick yellow fog rolled over the town of Denora, Pennsylvania, just south of Pittsburgh. Denora was a mill town nestled in a valley on the banks of the Mahongahela River. By 1948, the town had grown to 14,000 people who came to work in the town's steel mills and the Denora Zinc Works. For years, the local residents had complained about the pollution that spilled from the plants. Smog was a regular occurrence, but this fog was even worse than usual. A layer of cold air was trapping a noxious blend of nitrogen dioxide, sulfuric acid, and fluoride pollution. 24 hours passed and still the fog grew denser. The police and local doctors began to receive reports of people having difficulty breathing. The fog had become so thick that residents could not see to drive. For five days, the smog hung over the town until a rain began to break it up. Nearly half of the town's residents became ill. Twenty died. U.S. Steel refused to take blame for the fog, even though they continued to run the plant as the deadly toxins continued to build. According to a 2010 article by the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, despite the efforts of industry to cast the tragedy as an act of God, the fatalities in Denora received national attention. The event changed the way air pollution was viewed, moving it rapidly from an aesthetic issue to a public health concern, and spurred local, state, and federal officials to control toxic air pollution. In 2000, 
2008, a smog museum opened with the motto, Clean Air Starts Here. Labor History in Two, brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. And that's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. Even better if you like what you hear, and we sure hope you do. Like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. That's a labor-themed radio show based out of Pennsylvania. Special thanks this week to the Heartland Labor Forum for the interview with Tina Cordova. You can find Heartland Labor Forum wherever you listen to podcasts. Labor History Today is produced by the Labor Heritage Foundation and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. You can keep up with all the latest labor arts news by subscribing to the free Labor Heritage Foundation weekly newsletter at laborheritage.org. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks so much for listening. Keep making history and see you next time. Mm-hmm.